Scenes that involve more than two characters can be unforgiving in a way that those with only one or two are not. This is amplified when multiple characters are thrown into chaos. The more characters and the greater the chaos, the less wiggle room for author error. In a scene like this, it's critical to slow down every step and analyze each movement beat by beat. This is Taylor Stevens, the award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, that was maybe the best job you've ever done reading our intro. What's different about it? Steve is teasing me right now. <laughs> we are. This is the first show ever that we're recording video for. Not video of our lovely faces, but because we're going into so much detail and we have been going into so much detail over the last couple of episodes, we are doing some screen sharing and recording so that you can actually see what Taylor's talking about. Which Fingers I, crossed if we actually pull this off right. If it actually works, yes. Yeah, if not, works. we'll re-record this intro. But today, <laughs> we are going to be talking about point of view uh, from a, a couple of different perspectives. In the chit-chat, we're going to discuss a couple of quick listener questions, which will lead into the topic of point of view. So the first listener question uh, came as a comment on the website after uh, an episode a few weeks ago. This came from Peter, who says, starting a sentence with a preposition Taylor, you have to say more about that, please. I've started removing them from my story, but I don't know why I'm doing it. So, Taylor, can you give Peter a quick answer? No, I can't. <laughs> um, so the, you guys have heard me talk about the Hack the Craft program before, and it's like all these hacks and shortcuts, like thought, action, dialogue, those types of hacks. There are a couple of concepts that the whole thing is built around to this cleaner, faster writing just by following these formulas, kind of like the thought action dialogue. And um, we've talked about anchoring before, and we're going to talk about it again. And that is like one of the two legs that hack the craft, the whole thing, all these, these tips and tricks are based on. And the other is one that I've just been holding on to because I was like, if I give everything out now, then I won't have anything left for Hack the Craft. Nobody's going to want to come and see it. And so I'm going to go ahead and just put it out there. The second leg that is a foundation for all of these tips and tricks. And it, it ties into the whole preposition, why you don't want to start a sentence with a preposition. But um, you guys are just going to have to come back to hack the craft anyway, if and when I finally get it done. And you can see it all nice and pretty with more wrapped around it. But I don't know how long it's going to be till I get to that. And I don't want to keep holding on to this and depriving you. So in an upcoming show, we're going to answer that question about the prepositions. And I'm going to give you what I've been holding on to. So I have something special. Anyway. So way to go, Peter. Thanks for bringing that out into the open. I promised Peter that I would ask you that question on the next episode. So I've asked it. We did not get the definitive answer, but we know that we will get the definitive answer soon. Now. What is this definitive that definitive, you speak of? <laughs> the definitive answer. All right. 
The next question from a longtime listener, but not Bob. My question is about POV or point of view. The book I am working on is written in the third person. I have several scenes that involve several characters. Point of view of each character would add to the scene, but I am concerned about creating the whiplash effect you mentioned in a previous podcast. Any creative ideas on that issue? And then there is a second part of the question. How many characters are too many characters for a book? I'm asking this because some stories set in places like schools, military platoons, and so on often lend to having many characters beyond the three to four primary characters in the story. But isn't there a point at which too many characters confuse the readers? So Taylor's going to answer these questions, and that's going to lead us in to the main part of the show when we're looking at some material that Carol Newsom has sent in um, that also deals uh, with point of view and anchoring. So, Taylor, take it away. All right. So we'll start with the easy one, which is how many characters are too many? And that's going to depend on you as the author, and it's going to depend on the story that you're writing. Um, you can ask George R. R. Martin how many characters are too many. And I, don't, I think with him the answer is there's never too many characters. Um, it, it really has to do with how well you can keep those characters alive through the length of the story. Um, n- named characters where you just say their name in passing so the reader has some reference or you give them some uh, nickname like we've talked about in past shows, you know, Beavis and Butthead or whatever. Those characters come and go. They don't really matter. Um, they're easier to juggle. Uh, characters that are going to come in and out of the story, those are a little more difficult to deal with. So the more characters you add, the greater your skill needs to be in pulling it off. It's just, it complicates the writing process. And the trick for you as an author is every time you add a character that you don't drop that character. If you imagine every character is an open thread in the story, you have to make sure that those threads are tied off as the story closes as well. You can't just introduce them, have one conversation with them, and if you don't tie that thread off in that conversation, then and it's left open, then you never see them again in the rest of the book. It's, it, it leaves for a very um, scattered feeling. So that's the challenge of having lots and lots of characters. As for point of view... Um, there are different ways to do it. I've, some authors will do really quick POV changes. Um, so they'll have like a longer chapter and there will be a scene and then it'll change. It'll clearly denote that there's a change in POV, POV and we'll see something else from that other character and it'll change again and move on. Authors like James Patterson have really, really, really short chapters. If you've ever cracked open an earlier James Patterson book, some of his chapters aren't even a full page. might just be a couple paragraphs. That's another way to do it. Um, Sometimes you can skip a POV change by having a character be very attentive to what another character is doing. 
you can skip a POV change by drawing out through conversation what that character knows. So sometimes, and, and POV, when you have more than one character in the book, can be, um, it can be a challenge because the character that you're writing in that moment can only know what that character knows. And so to get the information out of what the other characters know and into the story without having it shown through someone else's eyes, that it can be a challenge. But sometimes those challenges, if you choose to do it that way, can open up for some real creative storytelling. So there's no right way or wrong way. You just want to avoid whiplash. And as long as you're not switching character point of view in the middle of a sentence or a middle of a paragraph, then even if you're changing back and forth quickly, but it's clear that there's a change, you will at least avoid the whiplash. How do you make it clear? It's it's a visual thing, a break between, you know, like a, a, a break. I don't know what they call them, where it's like white space okay. between. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so you might some, have the three asterisks or yeah, three dashes kind of or something like that, just to mm-hmm. make it clear that something has changed. Yes. Within a within a chapter, I guess. Yes. What I thought was really fun is that we got questions about POV and um, characters. And then right around that same time, Carol sent in some material also asking about POV. And in her case, um, she sent a huge block, um, some opening chapters. And her concern was we open the story with a lot of chaos and she's showing it from more than one point of view. And she wanted to know, did the points of view work? And they did. They worked really well. But there were other parts of the story that I thought, you know, this would be a really good chance to show how to take a chaotic scene and make it so that you know there's chaos going on, but you don't feel confused as a reader. And the material that she sent is not finished. It's, it's, she's still working on it. So me being me and not being able to help myself, of course, I get a piece of material and I just, I'm like, well, We need to look at this. We need to look at that. And so I've just like, I pulled 800 words out and I just hypermarked them up. But I didn't really do it for Carol. I did it because Carol will probably already be on her way to fixing these even before I put them on the show because she's still working on this piece. But I thought for everyone else who doesn't know how to fix them, this is a perfect example. And so I basically took what she sent me and I'm going to use it. And I'm very grateful as an opportunity. Thank you, Carol, for letting me use your work, even though you weren't finished with it and use it as a way to teach people who are still getting to the point of learning about anchoring and structure. Okay. Just a quick reminder for people that we are recording this episode in video so we're we're sh- we're seeing Taylor's screen what's on her screen so you can actually see what she's talking about as she's talking about which I think will make it easier if you're out driving around in your car or something you might want to check out the video version at taylorstevenshow.com and it might make a little bit more sense to you. You'll also be able to download a, a word document with the changes and the comments and things that that Taylor made there. So with that being said, Taylor. 
So normally, thank you, Steve. Normally, what I would do when we were doing audio only is I would read the whole thing first, and then I would start over at the beginning and start working over the areas that I felt maybe were still there was still room for improvement. And I'm going to try doing it different this way because it is an 800 block of text. But what's going to be missing is you're not going to be able to hear the full before in one flow. And um, I apologize for that. But I just I, I we may already end up having to break this into two different shows. And I apologize because I'm trying to find a way to fit it all in. And every time I read it, it it extends it. So um, my notes at the beginning are about a scene like this in particular. Scenes that involve more than two characters can be unforgiving in a way that those with only one or two are not. This is amplified when multiple characters are thrown into chaos. The more characters and the greater the chaos, the less wiggle room for for author error. In a scene like this, it's critical to slow down every step and analyze each movement beat by beat. To turn chaos into flow takes a very critical eye and a lot of anchoring. Anchoring is going to be the main focus of this piece. Now, anchoring as a recap. Anchoring is making sure that your reader always has one foot on solid ground. Anchoring is the masseuse, always keeping one hand on the client so that the client always knows where the masseuse is and is never jarred out of the relaxed state by an unexpected touch. Anchoring is tethering your reader to time and place. And when scenes are properly anchored, uh, actually, I should say, when each movement within a scene is properly anchored, you're going to have flow, where every single sentence clearly flows into the sentence beneath it, which leads to the next train of thought. And the reader isn't there trying to place hold everything, and the brain is not having to restructure so this scene opens with a, um, a crowd. Like, before we get to this, they're outside. They're at, a, a, like, a church chapel type thing getting ready to, to see um, a performance. And here, the crowd mutters as the guard leaned over and inserted an ancient key into the lock and pulled one massive door open. A small, elegant woman pushed forward. Better let me go first. There's no telling why he locked us out. So they'd all been out there waiting. The, the door should have opened a while ago. The agitated crowd pressed around the guard, through the door, and into the chapel as if sucked into a vacuum. People poured through the vestibule and down the aisle, pushing and p- pulling Laya toward the giant glowing Jesus floating above the altar. The momentum of the crowd petered out, allowing Laya to slide into the second pew from the front. At least we'll have good seats. All right. Now, as someone who's read uh, many books in this series, it's Leah, I think. Oh, okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I've never been good at pronunciation. Here's where I start. We're going to start with this this um, this opening, and it starts with people poured through the vestibule, and I've marked this out as passive voice. And the this is an, an example where choosing the right verb can make or break a moment. And I can't explain the proper grammar reasons, but so this is instinct, and please forgive the blundering, but in terms of imagery, poured through is as though we're seeing it from someone's detached point of view, like they're watching the action take place from above. And because we're supposed to be um, in Leah's head, 
This is going to set the reader apart from the story. It's like detachment. And if you change those two words to shoved into, the sentence moves into the immediate moment and we're there with Leah and we're no longer detached. So people shoved into the vestibule and down the aisle, pushing and pulling Leah toward the giant glowing Jesus floating in above the altar. The momentum of the crowd petered out, allowing Leah to slide into the second pew from the front. So I marked that also as passive voice. Um, allow, allowing Leah to is, is not, it's not action. But if we just change it to Leah slid into the second pew from the front, all of a sudden we're with Leah again. We're not observing her from a far distance. We're right there present with her. A woman screams, sending a collective gasp back through the crowd. And here we have our first anchoring moment. This is a critical moment. This, it's the announcement that things are not what they seem, but without an anchor, it arrives almost blasé, just another thing in the sequence of events without the impact it needs to have. How the anchor is placed would depend on the author's particular voice, but the goal is to slow this down and set this apart so that the reader is fully aware of where and what and why. Since we're in Leah's head, my own way of doing this would be to add what would otherwise be unnecessary words. Something like, from the altar, or wherever, one voice rose above the others. A woman's voice, shrill and piercing. A woman's voice climbing to a scream that sent a collective gasp running through the crowd. So what that does is it, instead of it just being... The, the doors open, people pulled, pushed and pulled, and she was pulled towards the giant glowing Jesus, and the momentum of the crowd petered out, and she slid into her chair, and a woman screamed, and then there was a gasp. We have a pause. Through all those extra words, we're telling the reader, oh, wait, stop, slow down. Something's happening here. That is an anchor. So, Jeff, Jeff, I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, my God, Jeff. Leah pushed through to find the small, elegant woman collapsed on the floor by the accompanist's organ. So, so those extra words, they serve two purposes, right? To slow down the action and that each movement carries its own weight. And so another way to anchor it then is to say, um, in the resultant silence. So those are, are ways that you can, can pause it. So Jeff, Jeff. Oh my God, Jeff, right? So... When Leah pushed through, this is also an anchoring. It could be misplaced movement. Either way, we have something that, that just clunked. I would say it's, it's anachronistic, except we're not talking about a different time and place. So when we last saw Leah, she slid into the second pew from the front, right? And so then a woman screams, and now she's pushing through. But where, why, like, how did she get from sitting on a pew to pushing through, right? And, and without an anchor to connect what happened before the scream to after, she's basically a purpose without a body. We need to anchor it. And it's very it's simple. Leah stood. We've just anchored this next sentence. And then we need a beat to get us from here to there and need to know where there is. So instead of Leah pushed through, it's Leah stood. She pushed through the crushing throng in the direction from which the stream ha scream had come. 
or whatever, however you want to do it. But we've got to have something getting us from here to there. Otherwise, it's we're already in a, the beginning of a chaotic situation without those extra details. It It's just sort of nebulous. There's no anchoring, right? So then we need another anchor. She reached the dais or whatever. And we need another anchor there. And then we need a clarifier as to who this small, elegant woman is. Because while she was mentioned earlier, just a few, a few paragraphs earlier, we don't have any attachment to her. And in the midst of this confusion, it's critical that we're really clear that this is who this is. So it would go, Leah stood, she pushed through the crushing throng in the direction from which the stream, scream had come. And there, the same small, elegant woman who'd pushed ahead through the chapel doors lay collapsed on the floor. So that is a lot of, lot of extra words to replace Leah pushed through to find the small, elegant woman collapsed on the floor by the accompanist organ. But what we've done is we've anchored the reader to who we're seeing, where we are, and what we're doing. Um, I also highlight the words to find. Leah pushed through to find. To find is passive. It's not active. So if, like, we all have our different ways of writing passive voice. Um, mine is to use the word was, was running, was uh, seeing, was fidgeting. And so I do a search through my documents to find those words, and I change was running to ran, was fidgeting to fidgeted, and it takes from passive to active. So whatever your own personal ticks are, once you discover them, d don't even bother while you're writing. It, it's almost impossible not to include them in. You just got to go through and hunt them out. And my own personal tick, I don't ever use to find, to this, to that. But it's a very common one. So if that's yours, then, you know, I'm pointing it out for anybody who might have that type of tick. Okay, so um, she was collapsed on the floor by the accompanist organ, one hand clutching a leg that extended from behind the instrument. Leah stepped by her to find a man on the floor. So we have um, that same uh, to find there. So it's another passive voice. And stepped by stepped by her doesn't totally give us the movement that we're looking for. Like, what does that mean, step by her? It, it can be understood in a vague context, but it doesn't really place her movement. Um, and so that will leave us unanchored. So instead of saying Leah stepped by her, we could, for example, say Leah pushed further forward. Um, and then since we want to try and um, to to if we want to try and eliminate the passive voice, instead of Leah stepped by her to find a man on the floor, we could say Leah pushed further forward until the man on the floor behind the organ came into view or something like that. I mean, I'm just putting it just throwing these out there as examples. Please don't, you know, think that this is the solution or anything like that. He stared heavenward, eyes fixed and mouth agape in a macabre, 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 
echo yep. of the I, I sorry seriously so many words I've never heard pronounced <laughs> macabre echo of the awestruck apostles looming in the stained glass window overhead blood matted his wavy hair wavy gold hair and was drying on skin as white as an El Greco painting so um, I've blocked out and was drying because it's passive voice I don't know what is the the best way to fix it? Um, you know, it, it's all tweaking. To to eliminate passive voice requires tweaking, and this is not my work. So, um, on skin as white as an El Greco painting. So, then after that, we have Leah's thought. Leah's thoughts in italics: No blood circulating. Taking his pulse would be pointless. And I say, okay, so this is an anchoring issue here. This is key. Skin as white as an El Greco painting is key to Leah's thoughts that follow. But without an anchor, it gets lost within the sequence. The easiest solution is to tweak the order of events and then add emotion beat. Something like blood matted wavy gold hair and congealed on skin as white as an El Greco painting. And here, I think my notes um, in a safe got um, got deleted out because it's not complete. Because I had um, I'd written an aside, and I um, okay. Here we go. So blood matted, wavy gold hair, congealing on skin. Why is an El Greco painting taking his poise would be pointless. He had no blood circulating. That would be my personal fix to tweak her thoughts so that the italics wouldn't be necessary to convey her thoughts since we're already supposed to be in her head already. So um, a lot of times italics are used to, to denote somebody is thinking something, and I use them as well. Um, but in a case like this, where we're so close to her already, I'm going to personally try to not use italics and find a way to just seamlessly flow that into the text and i'm going to save my own personal choice this is not the way to do it but i do it for flow is to save italics for um when somebody's reflecting back on something that's been said to them or remembering something and those types of thoughts i have a tendency to use italics for that and i try and keep so close to the character that we don't need italics to denote what they're thinking because the whole thing we're seeing is what they're thinking. But that's just me. And I'm just explaining this because that's what I do. <laughs> okay. So as an aside, I know nothing about El Greco paintings. But unless it's a pure white canvas with nothing else on it, there needs to be some identifier as to what in an El Greco painting is white. Skin white as, insert the detail, in an El Greco painting. Because otherwise, this reads as if the whole painting is white. And since I have no idea what one looks like and I was short on time and I didn't look it up, I cannot tell you what that is. Okay. Then we have, it's an information order flow issue. Okay, so we have a four-foot-tall brass candlestick lay beside him smeared with red on the base. My my issue with this, like me personally, when I write, what I find is that you want to try and keep everything together. So when you have an interruption of information, 
people, the reader has to placeholder that that information. So here we have a sequence of information that's being handed to us. He stared heavenward, eyes fixed and mouth agape in a macabre echo of the awestruck apostles looming in the stained glass window overhead. Blood matted his wavy gold hair and was drying on skin as white as an El Greco painting. Then Leah thinks, no blood circulating. Taking his pulse would be pointless. A four-foot-tall brass candlestick lay beside him, smeared with red on the base. That detail, a four-foot-tall brass candlestick, it should go up. It should go up above Leah's thoughts, because otherwise you have this flow of information broken with thought, and then we go back to a single line of information, and it creates an interruption of flow. So you always want to try and keep everything together so that wherever you're leading off with on that paragraph is ready to move into the next part. So the next sentence starts, Leander killed him. I saw them arguing. And longtime listeners will have heard me before on this. And I'm like, that's a disembodied voice. It's a voice with no body. Like we don't know who said it because it has no anchor. It needs an anchor. Well, if you want to hear more about disembodied voices, you can go back and listen to any of the episodes where Taylor's uh, helping me with my writing. And, and you'll see that I specialize in the disembodied voice. I wouldn't say specialize. <laughs> you sounded but, disembodied there for a minute. <laughs> I just, my pet peeve with disembodied voices has to do with anchoring. If you don't know who's saying something, then you're just like suspended there in space and the story's on pause until you can, can figure it out. So it, it, it breaks the flow. It, it's grit. So this says, Leander killed him. I saw them arguing. And I'm like, disembodied voice. The young man who said this was tall with a slender build, his pretty face wrenched in horror. Constance, Constance, he cried, patting her shoulder as the woman sobbed and moaned. So I have a few different comments to go with this. And the first is when he's saying Constance, Constance, we don't have anything to connect Constance to the small, elegant woman. We can get it in context, but... We there there has to be some anchor that connects one to the next. It doesn't have to be big. I didn't put in a solution here. I'm just saying it needs to be done. And then he cried. This is personal preference. This is nothing wrong with this. But my personal preference is it might just be me, but a young man crying brings a sense of melodrama. This might be the intention. But showing it versus telling with cried might be the better option. So if he's truly being like super emotional he, and, and melodramatic, then he cried is not the way to do it. And if there isn't any intention for that melodrama, then we probably need some other dialogue. If we're not going to go with said, some other dialogue tag like whispered or, you know, soothed or I don't know but cried might not be the right one and we've got patting her shoulder as the woman sobbed and mo and moaned so this could be f this is an anchoring issue also and it could be fixed by fixing the disembodied voice issue 
Like that would be the easiest way to do it. But the last we saw the small, elegant woman, she was on the floor. And we've just been told that this young man is tall with a slender build. This implies that he's standing. But if Constance is on the floor and he's standing, we have a body movement problem in terms of patting her on the shoulder. So that's when I was at the beginning talking about how when you start to move into a chaotic scene, you have to critically analyze every single beat because without that what is already mushed in chaos just stays mushed in chaos and what you're trying to do as an author is take that mush and create flow out of it so he's patting her her on the shoulder as the woman sobbed and moaned and if you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know how I feel about using the word as to join multiple movements. So I just highlighted as and I said using as as a joiner dulls the impact. This would be better served as separate movements. So between all those little comments on that one paragraph, all of that can be fixed with just retweaking the whole paragraph and reordering and whatever. It sounds like a lot because I'm touching on every single little thing, but these are not difficult fixes. They're just that if this was to be the final draft, it would not be very impactful and the reader would not be fully vested in it because there's still all these little things that they could give it more strength. So, Next, we have the other students looked around, apparently seeking someone named Leander and not finding him. And this is also a misplaced movement. You know where just a little earlier we were talking about Leah's thoughts and how um, her thoughts interrupt the flow of information. Well, here we have the same thing going on where it if he's if. It, it's a connected thought. Leander killed him. I saw them arguing. If you could draw a line straight down and we were diagramming it, you would see the other students looked around apparently seeking someone named Leander and not finding him because those two are connected. But when you have all these other things in between, you lose that connection, you lose the anchor. So if we're already going to be restructuring that sentence and so that it no longer has a disembodied voice, we're going to want to put the other students looked around as close to Leander killed him as possible to uh, within the, the context of the situation. And then after that, we have the crowd roiled in confusion. And this is another misplaced movement, because if the crowd is going to be roiling, we're going to want to see that much earlier in the story. We're not going to wait this long before there's confusion and the crowd all all bubbling around. And the best place, in my opinion, is to put it all the way up right after Jeff, Jeff, oh my God, Jeff. The crowd roiled in confusion. And then that's your movement beat to keep things moving. So when you have all this action going on, and we're still going to get deeper into the action, it's got to be laid out beat by beat by beat, even though in real life they would all be happening simultaneously. When it's in writing, it's got to happen chrono chronologically. 
and it has to happen together with the thing that is thought connected to it as close as possible thought connections have to stay together that's the, they're they're the anchors like like little magnet tra- you know the trains that have the little magnets on the end of them that kids play with and the little magnets are what connect one car to the next. That's what we're doing with these different thought segments is we're connecting them in a train. And when they're in the right order, it's just going to roll right along the tracks. So with something like the crowd roiling, you're going to want to put that way up closer to when that imagery actually makes sense in the mental movie that's being played and if you wait till this long to put that in it's interrupting the flow because it should have and yes the crowd's still going to be roiling right now but if you set that up at the beginning of it then it's already part of the picture and we're not interjecting it into the picture after this has already been set up and moving now, we've talked in the past about the number of passes that you make through a manuscript. At what stage in your writing process would you be going through and looking at this type of uh, – making this type of change? Um, it would depend on how much detail is in my first pass because sometimes my first pass is just word vomit onto the page. And I'm just getting the ideas and I'm just typing and typing and typing. And I don't care about any of this at that point. I'm just trying to get the story. And like, there's this thing I'm working on now where I've, I've probably written three times about a particular scene, like something that's happening, just because I've thought about it multiple times. And I'm not writing really in any sense of chronology. I'm just getting ideas down the page. And then I will cut and paste the different parts of it so like if scene a is scattered throughout my document i'll get all the parts of scene a and shove them up into that scene where they belong well there's no way that i would ever be attentive to this level of detail so on my second pass through that is when i'm going to be cleaning this stuff up and getting it all in its chronology of the the order of flow and then on my third pass i'm going to start filling in the deeper details so in my third pass, for example, I might not have something uh, in my second pass. Like, I might not have something like this in here. He stared heavenward, eyes fixed and mouth agape in a macabre echo of the awestruck apostles. Like That's something that my flow will be correct, but that type of detail might not show up until the third pass. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's interesting the way – and I, I have no idea where Carol is with with – the material here at, at what point she is in the process, we know she's just not done. And uh, it, it's just interesting the way that everyone does it. I know you've, you've said before you tend to write long and then have to pare it back. Yeah, I do. It, it sometimes my first pass, like my, my goal always is to get the story complete before I actually really start cleaning up, but I never fully manage to adhere to that goal. And so there will always be parts of the story that I've had multiple read-throughs before I even get to the end of the book. And so it's really hard to say, oh, this was first pass, that was second pass. If I followed my own advice, then I would have clearly delineated passes, but, you know... It's not as easy to practice what you preach. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we are 
out of time for this episode, so we'll pick this up again next week. I would love to hear whether or not, because this takes, it's going to take extra time to do the video and to edit the video into it. So I'd love to hear from listeners and viewers, in, in at least this case, whether or not you find this helpful. If so, we'll probably do this again next week so that we just have the the right flow, so to speak, um, with with this particular material, and then we'll decide whether or not to do more of these uh, maybe going forward. So that'll be, I think, our listener question for this week is, is the video helpful? And is it so, worth it? Is it, it worth the is extra, it worth the extra time? effort? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be back again next week with more looking at, with using Carol's material, thank you, Carol, and finding ways to um, showcase what anchoring means and how movement is supposed to continue as we go through the rest of this scene. And for the first time ever, thank you for listening and thank you for watching. Yes, thank you. See you next week.